chapter 10 as we go along. I have a feeling chapter 10 is one of those chapters that we tend to skip when we read through the Bible because it's just a long list of names. But uh, there are some important things in there for us today. Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach into the heavens, and let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. The last several years, my family has tried to get together once a year. Uh, and it always amazes me how, when I get together that way, we started 50 years ago just the two of us. And now, after three kids and their spouses, eight grandchildren, and one of them has a spouse, the house gets pretty full. And uh, sometimes we get a house together down on the Oregon coast. We've gone camping in Glacier. We've gone camping in the Banff Park and so forth, uh, different areas that we, we get together. But I always stand back once, sometime during that, uh, watching all the activities that are going on. And I have to ask myself, are we really responsible for all of this? <laughs> it, uh, it, it stretches your imagination a little bit there. But when I think of our family, nothing compared to Noah. Noah was given the charge to replenish, to fill the earth. And uh, I realize he had a lot longer at it than, than what we had. But uh, we want to look at how that was accomplished as we look at chapters 10 and, and 11. How, how did it play out there? And, and I realize chapter 10 and chapter 11 are two chapters that, if we're not careful, we skip when we read through Scripture. Uh, you do that in the book of Leviticus too, don't you? <laughs> and then you get into some of the genealogies and you wonder why in the world is it all here? We're just going to pick up some highlights. Uh, chapter 10 and 11 actually cover the same events. They're complementary, same as chapter 1 and 2 was with the idea of creation there. Uh, much of the, these two chapters is now history. And uh, I'm not going to go into all of the history. My original intent was to get through to the end of chapter 11 before we left. And I'm just about going to be able to do that. <laughs> Actually, we're going to start ver verse 1 of chapter 12 next week. But uh, as, as you look at all of the stories that we've looked at since the beginning of the year in, in the book of Genesis, there's a lot of different threads that are woven together. 
and that we're going to bring them to a conclusion next week. We're, we're, uh, and this is one of those, those threads that, that play into that there. But uh, I believe every major doctrine that we have as the church finds its roots in Genesis 1 through 11. It, it, it's, it begins there. And so uh, we'll, we'll try to bring some of that to a, to a conclusion next week. But as, as I said, much of this is history, and I'm not going to attempt to identify the nations that are listed here. There are some excellent books out there. I'm going to put Tom on the spot for just a minute. You gave me a book that really digs into that. What, what, what was the name of it? The Genesis of the Record. I, I packed my books before I wrote it down, and, and uh, uh, th- there are several books that, that trace these names out for us and, and the nations and so forth, and that, that's a good one to get and, and, and a good if you're in, into history there. Uh, I realize if you're not into history, you'll probably skip a lot of this, but uh, that, that's okay. Uh, we we want to look at it not from the standpoint of history, but what is the message in this for us? What, what is God saying to us as we look not just at these two chapters, but the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis? What, what, what is God's purpose in, in recording all of this for us? So we're going to give you the last thread this morning, and then we'll tie it all together next week. But we want to look first at the foundation of a nation here. What is it that makes a nation? Every week in Awana, we, uh, we change things around up here at the front. We bring the flags down, and uh, the kids say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flags. How many of you remember starting school every day with the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag? Yeah. Most of you do. Uh, if you recall in the, in the pledge, we are pledging allegiance to one nation under God. But have you ever stopped and consider what makes a nation? I'm going to submit to you that the United States is no longer a nation. It's an empire. And I'll give you some reasons for that as we go along there. But we say that pledge. What is it that makes a nation today? I think God gives us a clue to that in chapter 10, three places, verse 5, verse 20, and verse 31 lists uh, the, the same idea. So I'll, I'll just read verse 5 for you. From, from these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. And, and so uh, that forms the, the basis of what makes a nation from God's standpoint. Four things that make a nation. First of all, it involves a land, a geographic location. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember that song, This Land is My Land. Uh, that's uh, an old song, but uh, it, it's true. We, we look at this as our land. I, I still remember living for 16 years in Canada as landed immigrants. We, we had the opportunity or the right to take out citizenship, but this land was our land. This was our homeland. We didn't want to give that up. And so we, we retained our, our citizenship, even though we were living as strangers in a foreign country. You ever notice how we tend to be territorial? Uh, Gary hit it, the, head, the nail on the head there when, when uh, he talked about the golf course. If you don't like it, go somewhere where you like it. Why does he say that? Because that's his home. That, 
that's his land. He, he has a vested interest in, in that. Now, I realize we're much more mobile, mobile today than we used to be, and partly that's due to the economy. Uh, kids move away because there's no jobs and so forth. But still, we tend to think of a nation, when we think of a nation, we think of a land. Now, that territory can change over the years because of wars, because of migrations, because of other nations wanting to take over that real estate, but it's still tied to, a, a nation is still tied to a piece of real estate. We're struggling with that in America at this point in time. We have a, an immigration problem camped right on our border, the southern border there. And uh, let's face it, we struggle with that because this is our land. Do we want these people moving in? Uh, we, we, we wrestle with those issues, and, and uh, r- rightly so. And I'm not going to settle that issue for you this morning. You can continue to wrestle with it. But what we tend to forget is ultimately this land is not our land. Proverbs chapter 24 verse 1 speaks of the fact that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. They belong to him. This is not our land, it's his. I I realize that you probably have a piece of paper that gives you a right of ownership to a certain portion of, of this world. But I hate to tell you this, but it's not really yours. It's God's. And when it comes right down to it, that piece of paper doesn't stand up in God's court. He has the right to decide who gets what land today. He has the right to portion it out as he sees fit. We see that in the book of Exodus. And and when the children of Israel came out of the uh, land of Egypt, they came up against the border of Edom and then against the border of Moab. And remember, God said, don't go through there. Don't take that land. It's not yours. I've given it to Edom, and I've given it to Moab. It's not yours. You have the land of Canaan. God had the right to portion that out. And even today, we wrestle with that question, does Israel have a right to a land? Well, God gave them a promise. It was an everlasting promise. And so they have that right because God said so. Not because man says so, but because God says so. So we're, we're tied to a land as a nation. And God is the one that, that portions that out. The second consideration of a nation is the language. Uh, the linguistic considerations here, and that is important. I realize today many nations are multilingual. Uh, we lived in Canada. They have two official languages. That often, if not always, leads to problems. Uh, Problems in communication, problems in who's going to be in control, which one's going to have the the say and so forth. Uh, Try to blend two nations together and you have serious issues and problems. So you don't believe that? Take a look at Africa, the the different groups that have come together and tried to form a nation and, and they're always doing battle with one another. We saw the same thing in in America with our uh, Native American tribes. I I still remember when we went out to the Chilcotin Indian country up outside of uh, Williams Lake, British Columbia. In in that area, within probably about a 100 to 200-mile radius, there were three tribes. There were the Chilcotins, there were the Carrier, and there were the Shuswap Indians. And... uh, there were many attempts to bring them together. They all had their own reservations. But um, I, I still remember uh, between where we lived at Chilenko Forks and, and uh, 
Williams Lake, about 100 miles, there was a little community of redstone. All that were there were a few uh, Indian cabins, and then uh, there was a, a store there and, and a, a rancher or two in the area, but it, it was not much of a town. But I, I still remember one of the old Indian men, as we drove through that area, saying uh, the Redstone, it was the name of the little community, and, and there were big cliffs along the edge of the town there. And uh, he made the, the point of telling us years ago, those are the cliffs we used to throw the carrier and the shoe swap over when we wanted to get rid of them. Same tribe, or, or same background, same family groups in a sense, but they were different nations they, because they had different languages. And uh, they had their own territory staked out, and if somebody came into that territory, they wound up going over the cliff. Uh, they, they tried to do the same thing with the white man, but uh, it, it didn't quite work as, as they wanted it to work. Uh, the problem was they had a different language, and uh, I, I think we're experiencing some of those problems today in America because we haven't officially uh, adopted one, one, one language policy there. The this third thing that forms a nation is families or the ethnic background. Now, as I said, and I, I began by saying, I don't think America is a nation any longer. I think it's an empire. We have so many different, we've become a melting pot, but it hasn't worked out very well. You go into your cities and you will find different enclaves, different groups living together, families living together. And, and that often creates some unique problems for a city and, and for a people because we tend to stick with our family background there. And then he says, finally, it's, uh, and I use the word nation. I realize I'm talking about the foundation of a nation, but that's the word that's used here. So that's the word I'm going to use here. And that the word that he uses there for nation speaks of a political aspect. And, and what he is suggesting in, that, in the use of that word is that every nation has some structure to it. They have their laws. They have their regulations. They have their system of government that, that may change from group to group. But uh, every society has that basic foundation. Sometimes it's written down. Sometimes it's oral transfer passed down from father to son, from one generation to the next. But those expectations, those rules are there, and, and that forms that particular nation. But that leads us to the division of the nations. Chapter 10 reveals the division, uh, some of the areas that were settled. Chapter 11 adds some highlights to to what goes on in, in chapter 10 there. I'm just going to give you the... the uh, the highlights of what's coming out of this chapter with the, these divisions. And as I said, you can go back and there's books out there that will give you the history if, if you're a history major or want, want to get involved deeper in the history. But it was three sons of Noah. He starts with Japheth. Now, why did he start with Japheth? I don't have any idea. Uh, you, you would think he would have started with Shem. Japheth was the second born of, of the family. Uh, go, if you look at chapter 10, verse 21, he speaks of the fact, uh, and also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth. So Shem was actually older than Japheth, but 
Japheth is listed here first. His descendants are mentioned in verses 2 through 5. And uh, we can debate the birth order, second child, first child, third child, and so forth. We're not going there today. But he settled, or his descendants moved or migrated to the what we call the Indo-European areas today. If you, if you take time to read some of the, the names that are there, Gomer is mentioned. Gomer has been identified as the land of Cappadocia today. There, uh, Magog is the land of Russia. Javan is the land of Greece. And so as he spread out, or his family spread out, they not only went north into Russia, uh, west into Greece, but they became the foundation of most of the uh, countries in Europe as well. So th- this all came through the, the, the second son, Japheth, there. Ham is mentioned next. Ham is actually the youngest. Uh, in verse, We saw that last week in chapter 9, verse 24, where he is identified as the youngest son there. His people settled around, primarily around the area of the Dead Sea although they did spread out farther than that. Uh, if you look at what is mentioned there, you will find Arabia being mentioned. Uh, Canaan was the land that eventually was given to Israel. He also mentions Libya and Egypt. And then Assyria and Babylon are, as well are all part of the descendants of Ham. And, and that was the area that God gave to them. The one, one note that comes out of it is chapter 10, Uh, verses 8 through 11 there. Um, It says, Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Eric, and Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria, and he built Nineveh, and so forth. And and it goes on. He was quite a, a builder. He built found it several of the cities that we know of from scripture. But what I wanted us to note about Nimrod was it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, the, the name Nimrod literally means let us rebel or let us revolt. And I think here was a man who was, as a mighty hunter, was one who enslaved and sought to control other men. He was the one who was going to be in charge. He, he was the, the, the strong dictator type. He's perhaps the first major despot ruler that we have in, in Scripture. Uh, he, the problem is he wanted to be in control. He was rebelling against God and God's pattern for mankind. We'll, we'll come to that as we move into to chapter 11 there. But when it says he was before the Lord here, that word before can literally be translated, he was opposed to God. He was a rebel at heart. And that was the foundation of much of those particular nations that, that surround the land of Israel. And then we come down to Shem. And uh, he is the oldest of the, the three boys. Uh, we'll see more of his descendants in chapter 11 there. But uh, as I read there, he is the the, the key man in, in his descendants is Eber. Eber is another name for Hebrew. That, that was the foundation of the Hebrew nation there. And out of that nation came Abram, Isaac, Jacob, 
and the, all of their descendants forming the nation of Israel. And it was through that line that we come down to Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham. And, and so from chapter 12 on, the, the emphasis switches from the whole world to the family of Abraham and the descendants of, of, of Abraham now. And, and uh, it, it uh, isn't that God is ignoring the rest of the world, but the purpose of the word of God is to bring us to Jesus Christ. And so he zeroes in on that, that particular line that would take us to, to Jesus Christ there. One uh, note to mention is verse 25 of chapter 10, where he speaks of the fact, and two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Uh, there are some that think, well, in his day there must have been a lot of seismic activities, a lot of earthquakes, shifts, and so forth. I, I don't think that's what he has in mind here. I, I think it was in his day that chapter 11 takes place, the Tower of Babel. And, and that's what caused the, the division I, in the world and, and so forth there. So let's take a look at the failure of the nations in verses 1 through 9. Remember, God's original command was to Noah and to his children was that they were to go and do what? They were to fill the earth. They were to spread out. They were to repopulate the earth. They were to bring it under their dominion. There's much the same as God had commanded to Adam and Eve in the the garden of Eden. But what do we find taking place? In verse 2, they journey east as a group. They come to the plain of Shinar. Now, where's Shinar? It's another name for Babylon, okay? Babylon goes by several names in Scripture. So they come to the what we know of the region of Babylon, which is in what nation today? Iraq, all right? Uh, and the, the ruins of Babylon have been found there. There was a movement on the part of Saddam Hussein. I don't know where that stands now, but his his desire was to rebuild Babylon and make it a glorious city again. hasn't happened yet, and I don't not sure that it will happen. But uh, that that's was the desire of the nation. But notice when they come to Shinar, they build the city of Babel. They make a tower, a, a tower that's supposed to reach to the heavens here. Do you ever wonder why did they do that? I'm going to suggest five reasons for you for this building project that was going on there. It was never completed, but it was well on its way to being completed. I think for one reason, they were building it for security. They could, the ruling members could move into that tower. It wasn't just a tower. It there were storerooms, there were rooms that they could live in. And many times they, they would do that in, in the city itself. And, and if they were under attack, they, they could go into the tower. There were all kinds of food and supplies, water and so forth. They, 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 they could live there for a long period of time and nobody could get in to, to destroy them there. So they were looking for security. I, I, I wonder if perhaps because it mentions that they were wanting to reach to the heavens if they were a little bit afraid of another flood. And, and maybe this was their way of 
bypassing that, getting away from it. They could go up to the top of it if they had to and uh, escape the consequences of a flood. I think the third reason for this tower is found in verse 4 there, and I labeled it rebellion. They wanted it to reach to the heavens, lest we what? Lest we be scattered. What had God commanded? Scatter. Spread out, fill the earth. And they said, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay together. There's safety in numbers. We're going to forget what God said. We're going to do it our way. And so rather than be scattered, they rebelled against God's command. And they began to make a city and they began to make a tower where they could all be together. And then I think the fourth reason for the tower was it was a place of idol worship. These towers in these cities often went hand in hand. On the top of the tower, there would be all kinds of idols. They would worship the stars and the sun and the moon and so forth from the top of those towers there. It was a rejection of God, a worship of the idols that they had created for themselves. And then the final reason they give themselves here is that they wanted to make a name for themselves. Pride often drives nations, whether we realize it or not. Uh, we pride, we get proud of our ourselves, our accomplishments, of our possessions, uh, on and on it goes. And, and if we're not careful, we forget what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5. He said, without me, you can do nothing. Yes, they had a tremendous city being built. They, they had a tremendous tower being erected. But what was that really accomplishing? Accomplishing. It was just a feeble attempt to be like God. And you just can't do that. Uh, and God comes down and he evaluates it. Uh, in verse six, they, or verse 5, he comes down, he looks at their attempt, and, and in verse 6, he begins to take action there. Realizing they were one people, one language. What does he do? He confuses their languages. Can, can you imagine what it was like when God did that uh, can you imagine getting up in the morning and going to work, not realizing anything has happened, and you walk into your workplace, and your supervisor is talking a different language? How do you know what to do? You can't even understand them there. Your neighbors are talking still another different language. It must have been a very difficult experience for them to work through. And the end result was those that spoke the same language got together and they moved. And, and they, they settled in one area, other groups went to other areas and so forth. In confusing the, the language, God accomplished what he had commanded them to do. He, uh, three things come out of, actually come out of the confusion of the language. And first of all, it dispersed the nations. Uh, if you don't understand your neighbors and you can't even talk to them, you go to a place where you can, and, and you go with those that, that can. So it, it dispersed the nations. It stopped the construction of the tower. Remember, this was an act of rebellion. This was an act of uh, idol worship. And, uh, y y you know, if you can't communicate with one another, how do you do a building project? It's just not going to happen. Everybody has their own ideas of what's being said and, and uh, 
Can, can you imagine what this building would have looked like if, if we had several different groups doing it that, that didn't understand the other group? Uh, it, it would just be chaos. Uh, so it stopped the construction. But I think the real reason was it was to reveal God's power. They were rebelling against God. They were saying, we're going to do it our way. And God says, let me show you what I'm able to do. God's still in control. Whether we realize it or not, he is still on the throne. And, and we, we do well to remember that. We'll see more of that as we move into chapter 10 next week and come to the end of chapter 11 as he zeroes in on the one line that, that leads to, to Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean he forgot the rest of the world. That doesn't mean he wasn't concerned about all of the other nations. It simply means that the, the word that he's given to us is designed to lead us to Jesus Christ. Was he concerned about other people? Yes, he was. When, when you read the Old Testament, you, you get just glimpses of what he did in, in other nations. You have a Canaanite by the name of Rahab, brought into the family of God, brought into a right relationship with God. As a matter of fact, she's one of the few women that are mentioned in the uh, Heroes of the Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Wasn't an Israelite, she was a Canaanite. And uh, God saw her heart and, and found a way to reach her. You have Job. Uh, we're familiar with the book of Job. You ever wrestle with the book of Job? You, you read through 42 chapters and you wonder, when is God going to answer the question, why? And then you come to the end of the book and you realize God doesn't answer the question, why? And, and, and have you ever found that true in your own life? Uh, it, it, there's so many questions that we'd like to ask, but uh, God doesn't give us the answer to them. He was not a descendant of Abraham. He was a contemporary with Abraham, but we know nothing of his background, but God did. And God saw that he was a righteous man, and God loved him there. Uh, we have Ruth, a Moabite, being brought into the family of God. We have Naaman, the Syrian, a, a leper that God healed. We have Nebuchadnezzar. I, I think we are in for some tremendous surprises when we get to heaven. When we see how God has worked around the world in hearts and lives, bringing men and women to himself. Well, I, I think we only get a, just a small glimpse of it in, in, in the scriptures there. It's like the story of John. Uh, as John comes to the end of his book, he said, you know, there are many more things that Jesus did than what I wrote. But he said, if we wrote it all down, the world couldn't contain the books. And, and so we're going to have all of eternity to explore how did God work? What, what did he do in some of these nations? And, and it's going to be a tremendous time. We, we've got a lot to look forward to in heaven. But we'll see the full story there. But uh, what conclusions can we come to with the nations, the divisions of the nations and so forth here? Uh, i got several applications that I, I, I want to bring out of this passage. I, I, I think of... Um, the Tower of Babel that we looked at being built here. Did they know better? Was that a foolish exercise on their part? I, I think it was an act of re rebellion there, but how did they know better? Well, if you take time to read chapter 11 and you do the math there, and some, I was encouraged to find out there's a couple of mathematicians here. I, 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 you usually run into the fact that everybody says, we hated math in school. I don't understand that. That that's the, was the best subject in school. But uh, if you take time to do the, the math as, as you read through chapter 11, you will find out that uh, 
when all of this was going out and playing on at Babel, uh, Shem was alive. He died about 25 years before Abraham was born. Noah was still alive. He died two years before Noah was born. And, and so did they have the knowledge of God? Did they have the knowledge of the truth? I believe they did. I believe it was a deliberate act of rebellion on their part. The, the, they were there to testify of what God had, had done. Uh, men like Nimrod chose to ignore their counsel and chose to ignore their advice. It's no different today. Have you ever noticed how today people choose to ignore God in our society? Do we have the truth? Do, do we have the word of God more than any nation in the world? We probably, I, I don't know how many translations you have in your house. I, I didn't take time to count them up. I, I had at least four in my office when, when I packed up my books, different translations. I had more than that, but um, some of them I didn't like, so I didn't keep them. Uh, and I won't tell you which translations they were. To me, they weren't translations. They were paraphrases. And there's nothing wrong with a paraphrase if you call it a paraphrase. If you call it a translation, I have a problem with it. And I just don't take the time for it there. But we have the word of God. We, Our nation was founded on biblical principles. And we've chosen, like Nimrod, to turn against God and to rebel against his word. Now, I realize that's an individual choice. We choose, we've made that choice as a nation in a sense, but it's because we made that choice as individuals to, to rebel against and to reject the word of God. Rebellion always leads to division. It tears apart families. It tears apart a nation. It can even tear apart a church. And the reason for that, I think, is found in 1 Samuel chapter 15, where uh, in verse 22, Samuel says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and in sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft. Their insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. We think sometimes it's cute to rebel. And were, were any of you rebels in your youth? Any of you push against the limits? Any of you think you knew better than your parents? And on and on it went. God says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft there. If you have a critical spirit... If you are always at odds with those that are in authority, you have a spiritual, a major spiritual problem going on in your life and in your heart that you need to deal with before the Lord. In Romans chapter 13, Paul says the powers that be are what? They are ordained of God. And then in Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do it with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. And I would suggest if you are always rebelling against authority, you have a spiritual issue that you need to deal with in your heart and in your life. And God will not tolerate that indefinitely. He didn't tolerate it with Nimrod and, and the people of Babel. He came down and confused their language. God will deal with that area. Now, he did it then by confusing the language. Incidentally, it's not until we get to Acts chapter 6 that we see God beginning to reverse the effects of that. 
we have the, the day of Pentecost there, and everybody heard the gospel in their own language. Isn't it amazing how that worked out there, that, that God, so great was the message of salvation that needed to be communicated, that somehow God gave them the gift of being able to communicate that message in the language that the people understood. Uh, and ultimately, that comes down to John chapter 10, when we're going to be fully restored in unity. But until then, we need to live in accordance to his word. And, and I, I think about that. We need to reach out to the world in which we live. There are different backgrounds uh, and so forth. Uh, people are different. Basically, that's part of the, the result of being scattered there. You had different gene pools being worked out there, different characters being uh, introduced into the the lives of the people there. But um, I I listed uh, two areas, three areas that we need to consider as we look at this passage. First of all, we need to recognize that the gospel is for all. doesn't matter what people group it is. The whether you like to admit it or not, we all trace our ancestors back to Noah and through Noah to Adam there. So, uh, yes, we, we look different. We have different characteristics, but uh, it's all the same family. Uh, there is not, there, we, we talk about different races, but there's only one race. One is not superior to the other. One is not inferior. We're all descendants of Noah, and uh, and so uh, that's good for us to keep in the mind. The gospel is for the whole world, and then uh, I, th- I think the second application that comes out of this passage is we are all important to God. Everyone, not not just one nation, not just one group of people. We are all important to God. He has placed such a value on all of us that we read in First uh, John chapter two that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Not just us, but the sins of, of, of the whole world. That, that is how important each individual is to God. And then I think the major application that comes out of this is that we need to learn to reach out to the world. We need to learn to communicate the gospel message. I appreciate the work of our, our missions committee as they hold us accountable for what we do with our funds and so forth and, and uh, seek to find ways for us to reach out to the world. Uh, I understand there's been some talk about uh, some short-term mission projects and so forth. I, I think that's a healthy exercise for a church because we have the responsibility to reach out not just to Chihuahua, but the world. And, and the Christ came for that purpose, and, and he sends us forth. He said, go you into all the world and preach the gospel. Uh, we, uh, we have that responsibility today. I wonder how important is that to us? We can get so comfortable in Chihuahua. We, we can get so comfortable in our own little affairs that we forget that there's a world that needs Jesus Christ. Are we praying for the world? Are we praying for our missionary family? Uh, how many of you even know the names of our missionaries and where they're located? Are, are we upholding them on a regular basis in prayer? Are, are we seeking to 
support them so that they can do the job that we're supposed to be out there doing, and that is communicating the gospel message to the lost. Are we doing it here? Are we seeing that it's being done around the world? Just because the nations were scattered doesn't mean that God gave up on them. God loved them. God had a plan and purpose, and you and I are to be part of that plan and purpose. So I think it's good for us sometimes to stop and ask, Lord, what would you have me to do? And you know what? If we honestly mean that, God will reveal what he'd have for us. He might just say, I want you to go to Timbuktu or Africa or somewhere. I know we like that song, Don't Take Me to Africa. Uh, But what if God said, I want you in Africa? Are we willing to go? Are, Are we willing to say, Lord, whatever it is you choose, that's what I want for my life. Do we really mean business when it comes to serving Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that next week, but uh, wrestle with that question this week as we go through this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you that even though man rebelled against you, even though they refused to do what you said, you stepped in and you redeemed that process there and you made it possible for Jesus Christ to come into this world. We thank you for that and we thank you for what that means to us. We also thank you, Father, that you have a plan for reaching men and women with the gospel message, and that includes us. We don't understand why you would choose to use us when you could have used the angels, you could have shouted it from the heavens. You said, go. Give us the courage to accept that responsibility, to go where you want us to go, to be the witness, the testimony that you want us to be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're going to sing just the first two verses of When We See Christ. Are you ready for that day? What if it was today? Can we say we fulfilled the work that God has given us to do? Let's sing When We See Christ. Amen.